Hey, this is John Dervage. Uh, just a quick note before we begin. So, it's election season in Colorado Springs. Um, we have a school board election going on as well as some uh, propositions. I just want to do a quick note saying that we have actually endorsed Joseph Shelton, who was actually part of our last interview uh, that was uploaded. Uh, he's running for school board District 11. Uh, overall, again, we felt like he was a very good candidate, represented a lot of very progressive values. Uh, so he's actually got our endorsement. Uh, and, you know, please vote in this election. I mean, it's local elections are just as important as national. So uh, please, you know, make sure you f fill in your mail-in ballot, get that sent in by November 5th. Or if you want to vote in person, vote November 5th at your uh, local pre precinct. So without further ado, here's our next interview with Ken Shower, who's running for uh, county commissioner in District 3 in El Paso County in 2020. Thanks. Hey, I'm John Nervaj, uh, here with Our Revolution Colorado Springs, and with me is Ken Shower, who's running for El Paso County Commissioner. District 3. Yes. District 3. Uh, I think the first question, and this is something I just asking people, like honestly, I just don't really know what county commissioners do. Oh, that's uh, which is yeah, like you know maybe it's ignorance on my part, but you know, can you explain a little bit about you know the position you're running for and really like how that position influences you know our lives? County commissioner is easily the most important uh, office that that impacts your day to day life that we have. Uh, it oversees county health services, it oversees the sheriff's department, it oversees uh, zoning and development of the county itself, and that includes everything from mining permits to if they're going to build a new housing development out east in, in El Paso County. So they, ha they have a tremendous amount of authority and they oversee a very large budget. They're an executive branch, so they're supposed to, uh, they're supposed to uh, uh, oversee uh, and implement the laws that are passed out from Denver. So, and they receive federal, uh, state, and county monies through usually through property taxes, how it's raised here, levied right here in El Paso County. And they use that money then to pay for the services that they're supposed to be providing. It's a constitutional, it's in the Colorado Constitution that we will have uh, the number of the number of salaried county commissioners that we have. Um, with our population here, we have five. Uh, a lot of counties only have three, so uh, that's that's kind of how that breaks down. So, so is it broken up then by like this? You said District Three in particular. So District like District Three, which is the west side of the county. Okay. It runs, it, it runs along precinct lines. There's about 64 precincts that are actually part of District Three. So it's a very large area. Area. Mm -hmm. It runs all the way from the north part of the all the way down to 115. And, West of 115, down past Turkey Creek. So that covers like a lot of like rural area. Then. It does, especially especially District Three. Yeah. Uh, yes, and it covers. Uh, you know, it has it has a lot of the wild spaces that we have to protect for you know, wildfire mitigation, and everything else, which falls underneath the county. Okay. So, yeah. So like all of that would come out of your 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 job would be managing that budget, and making sure that mm -hmm. they get the resources allocated to them. Yes, and, and commission the studies and make sure that you're not. Um, developing a mine on top of a watershed, which the current county commissioner is more than happy to do down there on Turkey Creek, but luckily that's stalled out in court, so the, the landowners down there don't have to worry about their water getting polluted. Yeah, that's what's good. It's, it's interesting because you know, for how important of a position this sounds, even like you know the path, you know the person you're running against, like I couldn't find that much information on what 
they've done and what like, you know what has been done in the past in this position. So that's a little bit just you know kind of interesting that like you know there's not this sort of information available. That's just like I can't just Google like. You think you think for the job that important that you find out more about? I'm running against Stan Vanderwerk who is a very good family man. He's a very uh, he's a very ardent Trump supporter. Yep. So we're at odds there. Uh, he's uh, very much a uh, he's very much. Uh, kind of your classic big business uh, conservative. Yeah, looking at his profile, like I saw he was like a, he had like a CEO position for engineering firms. Like how does that counter what you think, like what you represent or what you... Well, I'm, I'm definitely on the blue collar side of things. I, uh, I come from a, a small ranch in Montana. Uh, parents were teachers. I, I'm, I'm an electrician by trade. Uh, I came here because of the Air Force. So yeah, it's I'm, my path he came as a commissioned officer, I came as an enlisted man to this area, and I am very much a blue-collar, middle-class American, so. Yeah, and more, you know, probably more like a worker. Oh, yes. Uh, no, I worked with my tools today, so I was I was wiring up, uh, wiring up VABs, they're called, which does building automation stuff, so it's it's fun being an electrician. It's yeah. very challenging. Yeah, and I think, like, because I live on the west side of Colorado Springs, so, yeah. And going to be in that area. Um, there's like a lot of construction, a lot of like you know road development, and honestly, from what I, the biggest problem that I have with the are that west side is like the lack of good public transportation. Yes. Like it's really hard to get from you know one area, even like the bus system. Like it's hard to get from one end of the city to the other. Let alone from like west Colorado Springs to like you know, you know Denver or Fort Collins. Like there's really not a good public transit system in El Paso. Yeah, or in Colorado in general. It's it's a major it's a major flaw that we have in our the way that we develop stuff. And the way that RTD uh, actually develops their maps and everything else isn't isn't um, geo mapped. Uh, so they don't necessarily look at the density of the ridership that's needed to reach the places that are needed that people need to reach. Um, I spoke with a person who does geo mapping and they had developed a plan that would actually move wouldn't change the service, but it would move some of the bus stops and everything else and some of the bus routes to areas that would better serve the community. And that idea was roundly rejected because, well, change would cost $10,000. We can't do that. And so I, but if you're serving the community, you will make that money back in spades. Yeah, you think that public support's there in this that area for, I mean, like, I know I would benefit from it. I think a lot of people would benefit from it. But, you know, you're running this thing with, you know, when you, when you get into the weeds of when you start to do some of the minutia of government stuff, public support isn't necessary. I don't it isn't as necessary. If the public starts to benefit, they will support it. Yeah. Um, they won't even realize it's happening. A lot of the ridership that would be impacted by this may not be as clued into the county level. I mean, let's be honest, how many of us are actually truly clued into what the county is doing day to day? And that's and that's that's a shame because the county is impacting their lives in a major way. So yeah. but it's so when you start talking, I think if people saw an immediate cost-benefit analysis of what happens when you put workers in line with where they're going to work, or people who need services in line with the services that they need through a proper ridership and a proper RTD program, we would we would see the benefits immediately. Yeah, like I, I think of an example, uh, I lived in Kansas City, um, and when I was living there, there was this you know, initiative to try to get like a public streetcar. 
going from like a, you know one end of the downtown to the other. It's really short, not that long of a span. But even that little bit was like you know there's a lot of people like against it, thinking like oh it's gonna you know bring in crime, it's gonna you know cost too much, all that stuff. But yeah. since that's implementation, that areas surrounding areas actually made more money mm -hmm. because it's brought business. And like everyone I've talked to, young and old, everyone's been in support of it, saying Bose is great. It's you know it's free for one thing. And two, like, you know, they don't need to worry about downtown parking, which is like, again, especially like, you know, even downtown Colorado Springs and like, you know, old Colorado City, like parking can be a pain, real bugger. Yeah, yes. pain sometimes. So, yeah, yeah I think it, I agree with that. And nobody yeah. wants a parking structure. Yeah, no, yeah, nobody, nobody wants a parking that. garage, especially when you're like, you know, down to that area, like you're going to block beautiful, you know, scenery of Pikes Peak, yeah. and Pikes Peak, yeah. So, um, yeah, and I think the other thing, you know, public transit, you know, kind of plays into is the idea of like, you know, getting us uh, to be more energy independent. It definitely is a massive step forward for carbon neutrality. The United States was definitely based upon, um, wasn't based upon, and developed into a country that relied upon automobiles to get from point A to point B. We have the most extensive road system in the, in the world, yeah. right here in the United States. Um, that does not necessarily equate to something that's good for the world, because when you have you know, 700,000 people living in the county and they're driving, you know, one million cars, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I don't, those numbers aren't hard, don't, don't poke me those numbers. Yeah, and I think, you know, so what else can, you know, a county commissioner do to help, you know, incentivize or, or work to try to mitigate the damage of climate change? So, one of the things that they can do is they can put, um, they can put caveats on, on their permits saying if you're going to go ahead and develop a brand new chunk of the the prairie out east uh, you're going to need to, you're going to need to not have HOAs that demand grass you know the number one pollutant in this country is the homeowner with their with their yards their green yards it's it's causing a tremendous amount of stuff to flow downstream and we're at headwaters here what happens here in El Paso County directly impacts the Gulf of Mexico and that is that is, a, that is a major responsibility that we need to take very seriously right here in town. So we need to make sure that when we do new developments that we look at putting solar on rooftops or making sure that we have, um, that we do the zoning not just for another power, coal burning power plant, but let's look at zoning for windmills. We have we have great resource in wind right here in El Paso County. We should be using it. Of course, we have more sun than anywhere else I've ever lived. I, the sun shines in Colorado's hidden secret is weather, so. Yeah, I think it's a little bit, maybe a little bit more sunny than Montana, I don't know. Oh, no, it's quite a bit <laughs> sunnier than where I grew up, so. It's, uh, it, it is so phenomenally beautiful here. Why aren't we harvesting that? It's free, let's, let's use it. Yeah, I mean, so. and protecting, like, you know, the public, you know, beauty, you know, that making sure that, you know, Pikes Peak is accessible and it stays beautiful and that, Full of land, you know, landfill turns into a landfill or like Garden of the Gods as well. Like, what do you or what's your stance on, you know, keeping that scenery there and bringing in, you know, good tourism that the local parks do? Whenever you start to deal with the public spaces, the commons, as the British would call them, um, that is such a critical responsibility. We have to be good stewards of the land that we are, we are given. We have to make sure that people understand if they go into these areas that they need to treat it with the respect and dignity because it's not just for them, it's for everybody. And so one of the ways that we can make sure is we're not randomly trying to frack Garden of the Gods or something really asinine and dumb like that, but we actually make sure, we're also not trying to cut into our public spaces 
uh, like what happened with strawberry fields and everything else, make sure that the land deals, just because someone looks at this beautiful chunk of land and sees dollar signs, that's not acceptable. They should look at that dollar, they should look at that chunk of land and say, this is something I want to preserve for my great, great, great grandchildren. Oh, you referenced strawberry fields. Can you go into a little more detail what that is? That dealt with, you don't know. That dealt with the city and it dealt with a, a land parcel exchange where they took a big chunk of beautiful space and they trans they changed it for something that was equal in value that was much smaller. So. It was a very contentious thing that really split our city council. And luckily, that was not the county that made those ultimate decisions. That was city council that asked all that. So. But I'm sure, I'm sure if it had come to our county commissioners, they'd have been all for it. Yeah. The yeah. right moneyed interest cared about it. So. Yeah, that sadly usually is the case. So uh, the other issue I always, you know, I see on the west side is, you know, lack of affordable housing. Oh yes, um, major issue. Major issue, especially you know the you know, homeless population I see in the area as well. I know there's a lot of complaints about there's too many homeless people, you know, and then they don't have really a good. Seems like there's a, been a solution on how to handle that problem. So uh, with the past county commissioner. Right, that's one of the problems that people have is they just they don't want to see the homeless, so it's like bust them out of here. It's like that idea may work until they put them on a bus and bust them right back. Yeah. Uh, that's, does, that does not treat the people that are suffering from homelessness with dignity and respect. A homelessness does not necessarily start in Colorado Springs. It can quite often wind up here. It can start in Peyton. It can start in Callahan. It can start in, up in Green Mountain Falls. A business closes. Somebody becomes homeless because of loss of job. And they end up moving to Colorado Springs trying to find a job. Mm -hmm. So for a solution, this is where county commissioners are so critical. For homelessness requires that all the counties in, El pa in, in Colorado come together and bring a roundtable discussion at least monthly to discuss how we're going to address homelessness at every county at every level. Because yeah. every it, it all feeds into central places. And there's even reports that Denver is supposedly busing homeless down here to Colorado Springs, which is, it, once again, that's just kicking a can to us. And then our solution is to bus back. I don't know. what I, People say that, and it just drives me a little bonkers. So what they've determined in a lot of areas that are suffering from extreme stress caused by homelessness, think like Los Angeles or your major urban centers in particular yeah. that have nice weather, so even Florida and places like that, what they found is the best cure for homelessness is rapid rehousing. So basically the best cure for homelessness is get people homeless. So we have to make sure that there is a streamlined process where if somebody does lose their place, that the services are there to quickly, without with the most minimal amount of interruption to their lives, make sure they have a home and a residence so it doesn't start to impact their work, doesn't impact their family, doesn't impact their school districts that they live in. I mean, it just the, the ripple effect of homelessness needs to be stopped as soon as it starts. Yeah. And we have to identify those trouble areas and we need to work on it quickly. And that's something that county health services, um, there's signs up all around town that say, uh, you know, don't give handouts, there's services available, call this number, call the number, and the services are pretty meek. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna say something like that, you better offer services. And the whole homeless people should just get a excuse me, this one irritates me. The homeless people should just get a job, it's like, oh really? You want them to go work a minimum wage job if they can get the job in the first place because they don't have a prime address. Yeah. And they can make more money standing on the corner. That's a thing. Yeah, like, you know, if you... And it's not a ton more, you can't, but it's more. And especially, like, you know, one of the next things I'm going to go into is, you know, rent control. Like, just the, the cost of owning a house in general is... I mean, you can't afford that with even, you know, I'd say like a $10 an hour wage. You need to work definitely multiple jobs. And you even, can... Even that is, I find it really, you know, difficult to live in this, you know, in this sort of area. So, yeah, you end up you end up working three jobs to afford a place to live that you're never going to see. Yeah. You know, it becomes a place for you to sleep. 
um, that's not acceptable either. You know, where's your where's your eight hours of leisure that we're supposed to be promised in this great country? Uh, it's it's rent control is is a very sticky subject that can really cause people to go up in arms because they, they want to be able to charge market value for their apartment. Yeah. But the thing about it is, when you look at a lot of these apartment complexes around town that have been built in the 70s, and they're renting them out, and they just keep jacking up the rent, you can't tell me that building and land hasn't been paid for for decades. And they're just, all they're doing now is just profiteering. Yeah. And when you have landlords that are just profiteering, you end up with people who end up with a lot of political power. And one of the biggest slumlords in this darn community was Douglas Bruce, who was the author of Tabor. Yeah. So when you start to talk about major issues that we have in this state, it was caused by a slumlord who liked to profitize off the people that were the, the, the most vulnerable in our society. Yeah. And I find that to be just, that really, really fundamentally upsets me. Yeah, and I see a lot of, you know, cases too where a house comes on the market, uh, you know, relatively affordable for someone who has it. A decent job and then you know they do a little bit of renovations and then it's on the market again a couple months later for you know twice or three times as much and it's just it's tough to have you know that sort of initial you have to jump on it and you can't really think about it because someone a housing developer will come along and buy it and you know flip it's, it. it's even worse than the housing developer buying it um, the housing bubble was when it burst in 2008 did you ever listen to that podcast the giant pool of money from this American life I don't believe so, no. It's the most downloaded podcast they've ever had. It's well worth the time and effort to download uh, a giant pool of money. Just Google it, find it, download it, listen to it. You'll learn, it gives you a very good uh, overview of exactly what caused the housing crisis. Well, what the, do, the banks were doing was they were taking a bunch of mortgages together and lumping together, and I'm sure you know this, but they were lumping them together with mortgages that were iffy. Mortgages that they were lending out to people who should never have had them. Yeah. And that was called toxic assets. And the, the idea was that the good mortgages would counterbalance the bad mortgages. But when the market, when the, when the economy turned south, they promptly, all the, they started defaulting at a rate faster than these, these, these subprime mortgages and everything, everything, everything collapsed. Yeah. And trillions of dollars shrunk and disappeared overnight. It was, it was very, very scary. Um, so what they did, the solution with that was Congress got together and slapped a few hands and said, no, we're never going to do this again. So the banking industry then turned around and proceeded to start buying houses and holding on to them and then renting them out and controlling the housing market that way. So you have a renting problem that's being created by banks owning houses, something they should not be allowed to do. Banks should not have assets on, the, on their sheets that say that. Yeah, it kind of seems like a uh, conflict of a interest. Conflict of interest, yeah. Very much so, and that's the next major. And now you can buy. You can go on to the into the banking industry, and you can buy these lump grouped together. And basically, it's a bunch of rents. Mm -hmm. So you can get a whole bunch of rental properties that you can invest in. Tell me how that's not even more toxic than the toxic assets that caused the 2008 crash. Yeah. So you know, one of your initiatives then would be to. You know, support more affordable housing. Oh, very much so. Very much so. If you build 100 units, you better have some affordable housing in there. And you can also do it in, in gradations. Because so, so when you say affordable housing, there's a lot of you get a lot of pushback because they immediately picture Section 8 housing. They immediately picture the, yeah. the, the scum of the earth, just crap. And that's and that's the sad thing about it is we have these people who like to profit profiteer off the poorest in our society, and that just drives me 
And once again, these are the sort of things that can keep me up at night sad and angry because there's so little we can do. The county commissioners do have the ability to not only go for affordable housing, but also working family affordable housing. So it may not be the Section 8 housing that you're picturing. It might be houses that are priced in the range where somebody who's working as a journeyman electrician can go buy this house. Mm -hmm. uh, right up, you know, right as soon as they turn out with their tools. Because right now, apprentices cannot go buy a house. Yeah. And that's, I bought a house as an apprentice 15 years ago. Yeah. So, come on now. We, the market has not shifted that radically. Yeah, I mean, there's other forces and there's other pressures. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, wage growth is pretty much stagnant when you consider inflation and everything else and the cost of living in general. I mean, especially, like, there was a report recently, Colorado Springs is a higher cost of living on average uh, than other, any, you know, than other places in the country. It's higher, higher than it. Before, it was always below the average rate in America. Now it's actually above it for the first time, I think, in, I think, like, 2005 or something. And one of the most beautiful things I've seen our current... Uh, Colorado leadership has done was pass the bill that allowed for and uh, uh, Governor Polis signed it saying that we could have regional control over uh, minimum wage. Denver's jumping on board with that right now. They're gonna have higher minimum wage than the 15 bucks an hour within a couple of years. Yeah. They're good. They have to get a pass first but the support the mayor's on board, the city council's on board, everybody's on, I mean all the right people are on board. UOCW is doing a full United Food and Commercial Workers, sorry. I'm a union guy, I have a tendency to use a lot of acronyms. Um, United Food and Commercial Workers has a full campaign going to support this because that will be a good uh, strategy for them to increase the wages and the living conditions for the people that work in our grocery stores and then doing retail. Um, which is a good career, it should be a good career by the way. That's, that's people go, you go to a regular grocery store, you see the same people for years. Yeah. And that should be, that's, that's a good service to the community that we all use and need. We all need food. So, um, that being said, a couple of years back, they held a, uh, they brought in a, a highfalutin, very powerful economist to, to analyze the El Paso County and its region, surrounding regions, and the nine municipalities right here in the area, and say, what is needed for this area to help it grow? And they thought that they, you know, by bringing in a good conservative think tank that they would get some good conservative people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah. But the very first thing that the gal reported, she got up and she said, the very first thing this region needs to do is dramatically increase minimum wage right here in El Paso County. Right the hell now. And people got up and left. They were like, I can't believe this, this highly trained economist would say something like that. And it's like, if you're not paying people enough, they can't live. Yeah. And if you can't afford to pay someone enough, you're not making enough money it is your business. I mean, you're marketing somebody else's labor. And if you're not marketing it properly, you're not going to be able to pay them enough. Yep. And that's, as electrical contractors, if they can't afford to pay the electricians enough, that means they underbid the job. Yep. And that's just, that's a problem on their end. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I see, you know, around this country, you see like these sort of migrations where, I mean, in this area, you got a lot of people moving in from Texas, and there's a lot of people moving out of Colorado to, you know, other areas. Like, there's like this sort of like, you know, migration of, of workers just going from, you know, places like used to be able to afford but can't anymore to, you know, kind of following as well the jobs and, and things. Like, yeah, they move to where it's where, the, you know, the cost of living is lower. You always hear the cost of living is lower. Yeah. And I, do, I personally don't want to do that. I'd much rather sit here and fix what I love about Colorado. Is already, I mean, I already love Colorado, so why don't I sit here and work on fixing it? Yeah. So, and we can definitely do that from the county commissioner's seat. We can make a dramatic impact that would really help the average, everyday working family right here in El Paso County. So. Cool. 
Hey, this is John. Uh, just a quick break here to remind you that Our Revolution Colorado Springs is a 100% donation-based organization. So if you like what you're hearing and want to hear more interviews from, uh, from us in the future, uh, please donate at Act Blue at Our Revolution Colorado Springs. We also are going to be doing a lot of events in not November. We have our general meetings and we have a lot of canvassing events as well as a debate watch party for the for the next debate. So uh, you can find those that information on our website revolutioncs.com or our Facebook page meetup, basically any social media site, hopefully we should have some presence there, so without taking up any more of your time, uh, here's the second half of our interview with Ken Schauer, who's running for County Commissioner of El Paso, District 3. Thanks. Hey, yeah, so, you know, talking to about El Paso County in general, again, a lot of it is in, like, the more rural districts, and I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, trying to reach out to those people in particular. Uh, like, what is, what are your, like, initiatives like, you know, target the rural communities of uh, El Paso County? So, rural development has uh, long-term stormwater impacts and everything else, but when you put in a new housing community that's supposed to be, like, a commuter community, maybe that's what they're calling them now, yeah. so they're far outside of the center of town. Um, so, like, would Woodland Park be like that, or...? Uh, even further. Well, you're talking. We're head east. That's where you're really north and east. Okay. Black Forest is. They're starting to build a lot of right outside there. There's huge housing developments going in right out there. I see. Okay. And what they're one of the things that you have to watch out for, of course, always is stormwater drainage. Um, you can't stress how important stormwater is to that we need to be paying attention to as a county. Uh, we definitely want, don't want to be have the EPA come in and tell us how to manage your stormwater. We want to be good stewards along the way. Another impact that you'll have is uh, traffic on roads. You build 150 homes on a road, spontaneous that little two-lane highway ain't going to cut it. Yeah. So. Uh, I see that a lot in uh, 25. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, there's this huge glut of traffic, and people are like, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. Just built 150 homes with 300 cars. Yeah. You're going to have issues. Um, they also are not properly addressing fire districts. So you'll end up with underfunded firehouses where they might get they might bond the firehouse but not be able to man it up. Or they might they'll run into where the communities themselves start to have to hold bake sales. Literally down along 115 they hold a bake sale to keep their fire district, their volunteer fire district going. And that very dangerous. And that's a place that has a fire almost every other week because Fort yeah. Carson starts them all the darn time in training exercises. So that's that's a major stink. They don't have their own fire. They have their own fire district, but it's volunteer. And I mean, those those guys work their tails. But Fort Col or Fort Carson does not supply their own. They do on Fort Carson. The secondary, third, tri tri tertiary responsibility is the surrounding community that they're directly impacting. So yeah, no, th these are and so if you if you build a new huge set of housing developments and you don't account for fire districts. You have a major, major, major problem coming your way, because emergency response is not is in the county is well above the, uh, the national average. Mm -hmm. I think we're hovering right about nine minutes. Yeah, and that's just not that's bad development. That's developing without an eye towards how do we lower that number instead of well, they're they're not even looking at that number when they're developing. They're, they don't care, and they should be caring. They should be caring very deeply. I promise you the first time your kid has a seizure and he's three years old and he's sitting on the couch and he's got a seizure and he's called 911. You count the seconds until the firefighters arrive to show you what to do. Yeah. 
and you don't want a nine minute response time. And that one comes from personal experience. I live in an area that has a very fast response time. Yeah. Our friends in the rural area do not necessarily, and that's dangerous. Um, and then when you, the other one that they'll do is, this is the end run, since they're not accounting, they're not holding the developers accountable, which is, as far as I can tell, is one of the only areas, in the only counties in the country that's not doing this. Um, they're not building new school districts. What they're doing is they're, they'll, they'll build all these houses and then say, okay, to service this, let's go ahead and just commission a charter school. And they use charter schools as an end run around all the requirements of a public education. And that's a major stinking problem that we have developing up north and east is you get these charter schools being built. And I must admit, one of the ugliest buildings I have ever worked on is a charter school. They do not care about any aesthetics for those kids. It's basically just a mill. And I'm, I am not a fan of charter schools. I do not think that they are serving our county properly. Yeah, I mean, from a regulation standpoint, there's just less you can do to like make less less standardized testing. They don't yeah. require the same level of uh, highly trained professionals. Than they're supposed to be training our men and women. They can turn away students if they if the kids too much of a problem for them. They can turn them away, and then they go the the few standardized tests that they actually do take. And look how well our student or school is performing. Well, yeah, when you just got rid of the you know bottom ten percent, I imagine it's going to do very well. Yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, I don't find that acceptable. So you can. As a county commissioner, create new school districts that would basically force like a private school to be developed in a certain area. Not or, a private school, public or, school. Sorry, public school, yeah. So the way around that is a proposal that I really like from the fire, from the firefighters and the school districts up in uh, up around uh, Palmer Lake, mm -hmm. is was to add a seven hundred and fifty dollar fee to the sale of new homes to help pay for the schools and also to secure the bonding to build a new school. Um, grade schools cost like $7 million to build uh, from the ground up, and high schools cost like $22 million. That's just spitball numbers from the Education Association. So um, to be able to, if you're going to build a whole thousand new homes, let's throw a one-time fee on the sale of a new home, and let's use that money to build the fire districts, to improve the roads, to do everything that needs to be done <clears throat> to hold the, I mean, if you're going to build a new neighborhood, you need to Everything needs to go along with it. Yeah. Um, it, helps, it helps it grow too, right? It helps bring in new business and ultimately and, is a good thing. And I spoke with the fire chief that was having, had a tremendous amount of frustration with our county commissioners because they refused to even bring up a vote on this fee. Just because they didn't want to, the idea of a tax burden or some sort of a fee for fiduciary responsibility, whatever it is. I don't, whatever, whatever. Whatever they tell themselves at night to sleep better, you know. How much? Because you always hear about like you know like money and politics, like corporate, you know, corporate greed and influencing the way you know people. How much of that actually happens at the county commission? At least how much of that hasn't happened in the past? So speaking to people down at the city hall that will oversee a lot of the, uh, the land use studies and everything else that goes into the effect of putting in the new stuff, they get harassed pretty heavily. Uh, by developers and their lawyers to make sure that things go their way, and this is this is a known problem, and it's never spoken about. And, and why? The, one of the things that, that I always find funny is you you hear all these this hand wringing about government corruption, and when it's actually going on, people just look the other way because it's their party doing it. Yeah. And that's corruption's corruption. 
Yeah. Let's let's deal with it. Let's yeah. root it out. Let's shine a light on it. And let's no, you're not allowed in this building. Whatever it takes. Um, it's and if you don't have a if you don't have if your county commissioners are not your ally when that happens, then you're alone, and your job is in jeopardy. Your livelihood's in jeopardy, and that is a way that we hold people over the barrel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and going back to the, the firefighting in general, I mean, there's a large part of uh, El Western El Paso County that's uh, forested, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have Pikes Peak, you know, a national forest. And yep. How do you... Waldo Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how do that's you, a fairly famous one. How do you uh, regulate that? Because, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you hear about forest fires that occur due to droughts in California and, uh, you know, basically destroying large sections of the, the country. Uh, of course, driving people out of their homes as well. So fire mitigation is a, is a major issue, obviously, in El Paso County, a major issue in Colorado, you know, throughout, the, throughout the country, actually. So one of the ways that you can do that, of course, is through selective logging techniques to make sure the trees are, you know, dead, dead trees are removed mm -hmm. from the, the spotted pine beetle kills. Uh, another method, and, and the county does work on that. They do actually commission people to do mitigation. The other thing to, to prevent the loss of people's homes and everything else is to make sure that they follow the proper mitigation techniques from the Forest Service. Um, there's, you also have to watch out for, uh, well, I can't feel like I'm really hammering on it today, but stormwater issues, if, they're, if you don't have proper logging techniques in place, stormwater becomes a major issue because of runoff, yeah. which then creates a large amount of uh, brush to grow up and brushes are very much a fire catalyst. Another thing that another thing that the county oversees that is a major component of fire danger is the weed board. And they have to be able to mitigate noxious weeds to prevent the, the undergrowth that actually technically starts on fire. So if you have an underfunded weed board, then what you can have is you can have something like spotted knapweed that runs rampant in an area. And spotted knapweed actually perform, produces its own almost like a form of petroleum. And when you burn it, you can actually hear it whistling and it burns really hot. And it can really start a fire quickly in an area. So not only do you have to be able to identify and see if there's a problem, know when your fire danger is high, to, but you also got to make sure you have to make sure that the, when the fire does take off it doesn't have as many places to go because the last thing we need them to do is to crest the hill and take out something like a kind of climb, landmark like flying w range yeah and that was a i mean that was a terrifying time for us here in el paso county they i live two blocks away from holland park which was evacuated yeah um, they had to leave coronado high school at the top of the hill that i live on Fillmore hill in the middle of their report saying everything's fine and also the wind shifted and it wasn't yeah and that that's that's a terrifying time so we have to be prepared and understand that a county services have to be fully funded and critical to the combat well the best cure for a forest fire is prevention yep. so and I am open to selective logging techniques and I'm open to um, Selective logging techniques are not clear cutting because up in the inland northwest in Montana, where I'm from, they always thought that selective logging up there was you could cut down five acres of trees and leave one tree standing in the middle of it all. Um, 
and that poor tree was like traumatized from yeah. all its buddies going away. So yeah, it'd probably not be good uh, for forest prevention if you just cut down all of the trees. Well, um, it would be perfect forest prevention. Well, I guess it's forest, yeah, forest, not forest fire prevention. No, it's yeah, not. Kind of the point of it is yeah, no, it can, forest. And they found that, that that doesn't do any favors to anybody anywhere. So, but there is methods that we can use, and there's there's techniques that that are well documented. Uh, that are environmentally friendly mm -hmm. and have a good impact in the area. There's other types of trees that we could be looking at planting, ironically, that are res that are resistant to fire, to forest fires. A lot of your uh, old growth large trees. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to ask. I know uh, growing up in Minnesota, I mean, we had obviously like there's the forest, there's always forest fires that we yep. hear about in. Uh, Canada that kind of ekes down. We, we see the smoke and things, but like they have just a different type of tree that doesn't, you know, burn as readily. Right. right. So I mean, and actually, the bark is and the, the pine cones won't even open unless the forest fire. Yeah, happens. and you also don't have like you know the uh, in insect infestation that causes massive spotted pine beetle yeah. being a prime example yeah. here in Colorado. And that when that nailed Montana and then it worked its way south, you could just see that devastation. And you could drive out in the country here and see spotted pine beetle kills everywhere. So, yeah. And there's nothing really to do about the spotted pine beetle that I'm aware of. Forest Service may have some other ideas, I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk to them. Yes. Yeah. So. Hey, what was the name of its um, water, va Valley Water? Oh, Fountain Valley Water Coalition? Yeah, F Valley. I think that's it. Valley Fountain Water Coalition. You're talking about Rosenbaum's group? Yeah. Yeah, where they're working on uh, the pollution coming from Peterson. Yeah. The the pollution balloon. So say balloon. One, say one more time. Fountain Water Valley Coalition. Fountain Valley Water Coalition. Fountain. And she always goes by the acronym like FWVC. <laughs> yeah. You look it up real fast. No, I, yeah, I have it on my Facebook, but I was because you mentioned a lot. I call this and ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned a lot about you know well water, um, you know being such a like a, a vital important consideration for development and for tree uh, management or you know forest management um, you know having so many military bases as having a direct impact as having a direct has had a direct impact on our water in the past I mean and now they're concerned about well water around the Air Force cap yeah this is this is not a joke no I mean it's like it's brought in you know millions of dollars to for EPA to do these tests and I mean it's, it's costing a ton of money for something that you know arguably could have been prevented uh, several decades ago, but instead it was kind of swept under the rug. And it's having health, you know, health effects on people who are you know getting cancer from you know these bad chemicals that were eking out of this fire uh, jet fuel repellent powder. That is that is one aspect, but there's other things that El Paso County has done wrong that has nothing to do with the military. The military has done a lot of benefit here, and a lot of and they. But that is one of the issues that they definitely need to start dealing with. And yeah. The federal government needs to step in and deal with that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not like, you know, you don't want to move away the military bases, for sure. But, I mean, like, the fact that there's, you know, something that has caused, you know, detriment to the public in the area, and that's not necessarily has been, I think, made clear to people. So the Mesa Springs neighborhood, which is right in the center of town, um, exit 148-ish, uh, Fontenero and the interstate right there. Uh, up there, if you go up there right behind the VA clinic on top of Fillmore Hill, you'll see a great big field. And you wonder why has this not been developed? It hasn't been developed because it's an old illegal dump, a huge dump. And they barely covered it over and they, it was some clay and they, they moved on with their lives. And there's a stream that runs right through the middle of all that. Um, that stream, they're doing water tests as we speak. 
because there's so much crap coming into that spring now. They decided that, man, this is a big, beautiful chunk right in the middle of town. We need to start developing this. And as soon as you drive anything over that layer, it immediately disrupts this huge landfill underneath it. Yeah, for sure. And it was used by the hospital. It was used by, I mean, there's scary stuff buried six inches deep there. And it's, and it's, and as they're kicking stuff up, the air quality has plummeted in this beautiful, beautiful neighborhood. Beautiful views yeah. on Hikes Peak. It's, it's a truly I mean, established it's older neighborhood. Pretty good penny, penny to have a house there too. But you're literally, it's literally built on trash. Yeah. Well, you're not going to buy one of those houses because <laughs> those haven't been built. They're trying to. They I really see. are trying. But it's they're you know there's they're obviously going to push back from the community. It's a major. I suspect, I, I can't say this for a fact, but I suspect that's a major reason why Fontenero hasn't been tied over to Centennial yet. Yeah. It's because they're like, well, to do this, we're going to have to build right over the top of an old dump. That's bad. So, and that's just right here. Yeah. I mean, that's downtown Colorado yeah, Springs. Yeah, it's not far away. Yeah, it's, it's two minutes from downtown Colorado Springs. And then you have other issues where we had old mining that people forgot about, yeah. nailing like the rock rim and area. They got sinkholes and other issues developing there, and that's impacting the water quality there. So it's not just the military bases polluting our ground well. Past practices have done a number on us also. Yeah. And that's why it's so critical that before we do anything moving forward, we don't repeat the sins of our fathers. Yeah. We do a good job moving forward. Yeah, because I think you know, Colorado Springs has had like a, a pretty interesting history, mm -hmm. uh, especially like, you know, you know, mining history, you know, the military, military history, history, General Palmer, uh, yeah, I mean, McAllister, the, the fact yeah. that you have, you know, like Drake Power Plant opening literally right next to the downtown, which I had never seen in any other city. Really. It's, it's, um, I've worked on that power plant, by the way. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that we think it's a good idea to dig up a bunch of dirt from Wyoming, throw it on a train, drive it down here, and then burn it. Coal boggles my mind. It's we. Try to tell me in the history of coal where it was been. You know, I know it. I know it drove the industrial revolution. Yeah. But when you actually study the industrial revolution, what they they moved away from water wheels that drove machinery, and they were like, we were able to move away from major waterways and do this. And you're like, yeah, but you're burning dirt. Yeah, considering it's you know such an old technology that you know, yeah, it did have a lot a big impact in the United States history in general, but. It is no longer the cheapest and no longer, obviously, the safest, safest source of energy. Now this push for natural gas. I wonder who thinks it's a good idea to shove a bunch of explode stuff underground and think, oh, this won't hurt us. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, there is, we have some logistical problems that we really desperately need to do. Yeah, I mean, like, they're, they're talking about adding, like, a, you know, they approved a new stadium downtown, so yep. people are going to be coming in from out of state. People are already, you know, tourist, tourism is already a big part of our Very economy, huge. and you, know, you see a giant coal-burning power plant emitting, oh, you know, right next to America, the beautiful heart. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of, uh, <laughs> Kind, yeah. of, kind of contradictory. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the fine men and women who work at Colorado Springs Utilities need to be able to, when we transition away from Drake, need to be able to have jobs with, uh, have, be able to move into a new, into the new industry yeah. with, with justice and parity. Because the last thing world you want to do is take somebody who's making $80,000 a year supporting their entire family and get rid of their job and say, good luck. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, so. the coal the coal workers, the people who are working in coal mine, the people working at Drake, they're not the 
the enemy. No, definitely of, not. There, yeah, and I mean, there are a lot of my union brothers and sisters down there. That's, yeah, they're and darn good people. So. And you hear a lot about you know this idea of a just transition for those workers, where they can move move over to a new industry, probably likely a higher paying industry. Right. Um, and even if they don't have the education, you can get get education through some some means. Um, so one of yeah. the things I worked on this last year was the just and equitable transition of to the new green to a more green economy. Yep. Jared Bullis has a very aggressive plan to make us all energy renewable by 2040. Um, but to do that, we have to make sure that the right uh, regulations and policies go in on these new industries. We don't want uh, FBN Electric, as we call them, fly-by-night electric, some out-of-state group coming in with a bunch of people who aren't licensed, slapping up a bunch of solar farms that are going to fail in a week and a half, yeah. and then, then scooting for the border. Yeah, because that's what you hear a lot about, too. Like, oh, the idea that you know, solar power isn't as efficient or is more expensive, and I don't think that's necessarily true. It's not the case anymore. It's just when it's for profit and you're, tr you're trying to make it as cheap as possible, then, I mean, that's anything. You, you, you try to, you know, make something very, very cheap and you get the, you know, the, the budget option. Uh, so it's energy, energy storage is the problem there. Um, and there's ways that we've, we've started to mitigate the, the costs associated with that. The number one draw on an electric power plant is called inductive load, which is your motors and your uh, transformers found in uh, like fluorescent uh, lighting. Yep. Uh, and those that causes a major draw on power plants. I'm an electrician, I geek out about this stuff. Uh, and the way that you deal with that is capacitance, because the opposite of inductance is capacitance. And we have, through uh, very, very intelligent initiatives put forth by the Obama administration, we have started to upgrade our grid in such a way that it deals with the inductive hit and the storage of power to be so that way when the sun's not shining, we still have electricity. Yeah. Um, if the wind does manage to stop blowing out east, which I don't think it ever has, but hypothetically if it did, then we have a way to still keep the lights on. Yeah, so. yeah. And, yeah for sure. I think and there's been you know innovations even recently that made has made solar power more efficient, and yeah, innovations that allow us to store more power. Very uh, much so. In you know these basically large, large-scale batteries. I like to think of them. Uh, Australia a couple of years back came up with a brilliant idea of using compressed air in a rotary shaft engine, and rotary shaft engines only take one psi to start spinning. Mm -hmm. So they started using compressed air for their generators. That could be. A problem though, right? You use solar powers to run a compressor, yeah. build up air, and then it just pop, 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 and it powers up a generator. It's, it's it's a clean loop. It's but it, it's oh, as long as it's compressor. I guess when I think of compressor, I'm thinking of like the stuff that's potentially bad for the ozone. No, no, talking well, about just when I'm talking about compressor, I'm talking about your air compressor in your garage that you use I to gotcha. fill up your bike tires. Yeah, yeah. that one. Yeah. that's what they're doing. So it's not even like a can of something with. Acronyms that I don't remember off the top of my head yeah. I'm involved. No, this is honest to God, pump air into a tank and then pump it back out at night. And then you have solutions like that, and you're just like, and they're using it. They have rack mounted generator. And that was one of the that was one of the initiatives that they looked at during the Obama administration is how do we really ramp this up? Underground natural storage of air. Pump it up during the day, pump it out during at night to power up generators. Yeah. So these are these are solutions that we have out there that we need to be looking at as a county to develop a better, cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking you know just about energy efficiency in general, like obviously what that goes to support is you know combating climate change in general. Which, and I think you know we, we have to do. Yeah, and I think you have to address it you know through every you know every facet. I think there's been a lot of light policies that have come through. 
uh, even in recent you know democratic debates where you know people talk about oh it's something's going to cost too much or you know you're you're not you, it's, it's going to occur too quickly I mean we don't have time to dilly dally and worry about you know I mean you have to worry about the finances of it but when you have policies that you know can create millions and millions of jobs and can basically lead to a future where you know our kids and grandkids aren't going to there's more suffer. people employed in renewable energy than there is in the old. Yeah, and that's the other thing that people, you know, you, you, there's a lot of money in pumping, you know, campaigns to try to say that, you know, this is a huge industry. I mean, this even happened, I think, in the last election in Colorado with the fracking. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they had the two initiatives on the ballot trying to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. And they were a mess. Mm -hmm. They just don't, people don't, they see, one hand, they see jobs, we want jobs, and the other hand, you know, but what about tomorrow? Yeah, and it is a, it is a tightrope because you, it's all for we can't live only for tomorrow. We have to also live for today, but we should be living for today with an eye on tomorrow. For sure, I would almost say that. Yeah, for, to a certain extent, that worrying about the future uh, again for our kids and grandkids is almost takes precedent. I'd say over. I mean, at least that's how my parents raised me and. Oh, yeah. and my grandparents are always about trying to provide a better future for you know, tomorrow. So. Always. If you're not working towards a better future, then what are you working towards? And one of the ways that, and this is one thing I really like about uh, our revolution, is, is they, they focus heavily on uh, uh, income inequality. Because when you start to focus on the now, when you're only focusing on just surviving, is when you do not have any breathing room in your own budget. Yeah. To get people to be able to care about tomorrow, they have to be able to live comfortably today. You have to have you know, shelter, it's affordable housing, you need to have access to food, that's you know, basically making sure the cost of living isn't too high and you have a decent salary to support yourself and obviously access to Medicare. Oh yeah, or some sort of healthcare, you know, healthcare yeah. in general with, yeah, through Medicare for all, you wouldn't need to worry about any of that. I mean, it's, you, I always think of a, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Where you have like these basic needs that you need to address. Uh, and if you address those then you know, you'll just prosper in the future. Uh, so, yeah, it's yeah, it's a major. Uh, the, Medicare for all has is one of those solutions that has long-term impacts on county health services. It would really free up some money in our budget. And you go, know, oh, the cost, the cost. I love, I loved when they first proposed this at the very first debate, and the, the Republicans came out and said it'll cost thirty-two trillion dollars. Yeah, and it's like let's crunch those numbers. Yeah. How many Americans are there? Three hundred twenty million ish. So thirty-two trillion divided by three hundred twenty million is a hundred thousand dollars per person. Does that make sense? No. No. Yeah. It's not going to cost that much. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I mean, I guess we pay more for our health care than any other modern or modernized country. More than twice as much. More than twice as much. I mean, and, and we get less. Yeah, and I mean, it's getting to the point too where even people don't want to call the 911 or don't want emergency services because they're afraid they're not going to be able to afford it. I mean, that's barbaric. You know, that was the thing. I called the fire department uh, on my son when he had a seizure, and that's where that story came from earlier, and they showed up. And uh, then they're like, he needs to go to the hospital. Okay. And the ambulance driver sat in there waiting, and I said, I will drive him down there myself. Yeah. It, and if he had had a seizure while I was driving, I would not have been a safe driver. But I... My son's life is on the line, and I'm thinking to myself, we won't be able to feed him 
once we get the stupid ambulance ride. Yeah, and that's ridiculous. So, I mean, there's an eye to the future focusing on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and so I drove him down there, and he had another seizure while I was getting checked into the emergency room. So I hit the window where he was not seizing. Yeah. And that's, let me tell you something. When you see something like that, I don't care who you are, it's going to rock your world in ways you don't want to have it rock. Yeah. And we should not be worried about it. I shouldn't be worried about my damn checkbook when my son's life is in jeopardy. Yeah. And that's, it's that simple. And that's garbage. And there's so many people that go through that. We had a guy, we had an electrician uh, a couple years back uh, working on a project who refused to go to the emergency room because of the cost mm -hmm. until it was too late. He went, he worked all day Friday, coughing and hacking. I'm like, dude, you need to go home. You need to get, I gotta work. I gotta, I gotta pay my bills. He went that night to the emergency room. He was dead by midnight from pneumonia. This was a union electrician with union coverage. Yeah. We have some of the finest insurance in the country and he was too scared to miss work to go do that. We need paid sick time and we need universal coverage. Yeah. And the cost will go down. Yeah. It will be cheaper for every American if we do that. Point blank cheaper. So you have some experience working in the union. Uh, yes. Something that, you know, and I, I know this isn't necessarily related to your county commissioner, so I apologize, but not too many, not, I don't think we've ever had anyone come in who's actually been a part of like the union process or has some experience with that. And something that we hear uh, as a, against Medicare for all is this idea that, you know, if you're going to lose, potentially lose your benefits or you're going to lose your, the coverage that your union negotiated for and you're basically going to get less coverage because of it. How does like, Help me understand that argument, because like I don't really understand so, uh, what that's actually trying to say. So there are some people in the union who feel that it's a value add that the union offers, that we offer this health care that follows us from job to job. Yeah. My health care as a union electrician does not come from the contractor. It's not mm -hmm. like, it comes from the 8th district, which is the district that we're organized under for our health care for the union. So um, if I work in Wyoming, Montana, uh, you know, if I go on the road working, my same exact healthcare benefits follow me from place to place. Okay. If I work for five different contractors throughout the year, I don't see any interruption with my coverage because the union provides the coverage. Mm -hmm. So you have some people who are concerned about value add on this. One of the major problems that we have though is when you have a small shop starting up mm -hmm. and they first, you got two guys and they got a van and they decide they're going to go start their own new shop. Yeah. What they'll do then is they'll be covered by their wife to have health insurance during that time because paying for this Cadillac insurance is not cheap. Yeah, for sure. Once they break over to a certain number of employees, then they have to go on the insurance, a district insurance, and that's, that's just so we the pool. And we lose small contractors at that point. Those contractors will then go non-union and build up, and that's a major stinking problem that we have, and it undermines the entire labor movement. Yeah. So the, the the people that feel that union benefits are a value add and therefore we don't want to we don't want to go from come on now we have fought we didn't fight for the eight hour workday for we didn't fight for weekends just for union members yeah we didn't fight for all the stuff that unions have brought to our society just for a small group of people this is not a special this is not a country club we're trying to change the world for better mm -hmm. and as a union leader because I am a union leader. You know that. I'm president of the Colorado Springs Area Labor Council, treasurer of IBW Local 113, yeah. vice president of the Colorado AFL-CIO. I am an honest-to-God, dyed-in-the-wool union leader. I do almost all that on voluntary time, by the way. Um, one of the things that we need to be doing is when we improve all of society, then we get to go on to the next 
big battle. So if we can bring Medicare for all for every last year, if we can get universal health care right the hell now, then we can start working on the next major fight. And that's what we, we don't need to be focusing on these fights that we've been focusing on for the last hundred years. Yeah. Let's move on to the next one. So, okay. a little passionate. Yeah, that's good.